verses 2 through 16. This is an interesting passage, isn't it? As we've read it already this morning, um, in, in my study this week, I heard uh, one say, if you were ever wondering about your pastor's commitment to expository preaching and going through books of the Bible passage by passage and verse by verse, today should remove all doubt. Uh, one of those kinds of uh, days. However, um, I would I would argue that uh, the whole counsel of God's word is important for us. And to skip over something would be a detriment to us, not a help to us. Um, we wouldn't want to miss out on what God has for us to say and the joy that we can have in him by following uh, hard after what he has given us uh, to do, to exemplify him, to love him, and to love one another in this life. Um, in the last few chapters in 1 Corinthians, we have been learning about how to use our liberty as Christians to love others, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, and to love unbelievers that they might be saved. And we could say it this way, instead of using our liberty, our freedom as Christians to get away with being selfish uh, and sinful, we are to use our freedom from sin to be like Christ, to sacrificially give of ourselves for the benefit of others. We do not celebrate and enjoy our freedom from sin by sinning. We change. We, we no longer want to be trapped in lust. We, we love. We put off the old man and we put on the new man, the new creation that we are in Christ Jesus. And so we sacrifice. We build others up. We point people to Christ. We glorify God. And now in chapters 11 through 14, we're going to see uh, how that love and that desire to build up the church and to reach the lost for Christ is applied in three specific areas. That the church, that the church at Corinth had either asked Paul about or that he simply saw, uh, was aware of, and knew they needed some instruction. And so these three areas, first, the roles of men and women. That's what we're going to talk about today from this passage. Uh, Second, the Lord's Supper. How to conduct ourselves in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That's going to be the last half of chapter 11. And then third, spiritual gifts. Uh, Spiritual gifts. And I think we'd probably agree that there are there really is not much of a cultural war or even a battle within the church over how the Lord's Supper should be served. Nobody's really arguing about that or debating that so much. Uh, certainly no one has been gluttonous, uh, had too much to eat, or gotten drunk in any of our recent uh, Lord's Supper services. So check on that, right? Um, I think we'd agree that uh, everyone would agree it's a proper time, the Lord's Supper, for us to reflect, inspect our hearts uh, to be pursuing holiness and union together as a church. But there are more battles, or at least disagreements, that are had as it relates to spiritual gifts, uh, which some of you might be looking forward to more than this passage today. And of course, there are numerous battles going on in the world around us, and even in churches and denominations, about the God-given roles of men and women, our roles in our homes and in the church. So it's important for us to remember as we step into these passages, uh, it can be very easy for us to bring our cultural understandings, even our fears of rejection, rejection from other people, to bring those things into our study of the scripture. Uh, We can read with our own agenda or with the agenda of the ones that we most hope to please those whom we fear more than God. 
We can bring those into the text of Scripture like this one, and it can cause us to see what we want to see or what we're told to see instead of what the text actually says. Now, we must strive to read Scriptures as the Word of Almighty God and desire and value the Lord as the one whom we exist to please. He created us. We were made to glorify him. Uh, So that when we read the Bible, we are evaluating the world, evaluating our experiences, even evaluating the desires of our own hearts through the lens of Scripture. If you would think of it like putting on glasses, uh, we want to use the Scripture to rightly interpret the world and to rightly interpret our experiences and to rightly understand and value even the desires of our own hearts instead of evaluating the scriptures through the lens of the world, through the lens of our experiences, through the lens even of the desires of our own hearts. God is the one who holds authority, who holds sway. Does that make sense? Uh, the world can be wrong. I say newsflash on that, right? The world can be wrong. Our experiences can lie to us. Uh, Satan is sneaky like that. Our own selfish desires, our thinking is sneaky like that. But God is eternally good and only does good and is the final standard of good. And he gave us the truth and he gave us his holy commands here in his word. Praise God for that. Uh, So may we, his blood-bought people, this Sunday and every Sunday and every time we open and read the Bible, may we be continually transformed by his grace as we behold his glory through his word. May we be so enamored with his goodness, his love, his glory, that we would never come to scripture with a, yeah, but, approach to explain away what sounds hard or even what might sound as repulsive to others. And may we be so convinced of his glory and his authority and the coming rule and reign of Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings and blown away by his love for us and saving us from our sin and giving us eternal life with him that when we come to any passage like this, we wouldn't dare to be more concerned with what our co-workers what our neighbors, what our friends at school would think about us, then we would be ready and willing to obey the Lord, ready to suffer the rejection of a world that also hates our Savior, and ready to experience the joy and rest that comes with believing and doing what our Creator has made us and redeemed us to do, and to do it with kindness. Understand this, I'm not saying we believe what we believe and we can be jerks about it. No, no, no that we would believe God, submit to him, love him, and love other people, even when they hate us for it. So with all that in mind, let's jump into this text. Verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you. So Paul's saying, way to go. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, the teachings that I've passed on to you, even as I delivered them to you. 
Now, this use of the word traditions isn't a bad one. Sometimes we hear traditions and we might like it or not like it, but this is not the traditions of man over the commands of God, not that kind of an idea. This word just means, uh, Paul is saying, you have done well in taking seriously what I've taught you. Paul passing on to the church what he has been taught. Uh, Paul had teaching delivered to him by the other apostles, even by Christ, and so what Paul was telling the church to do was authoritative. It was from God. And even today, as we read this passage together, we are reading the very words of God inspired by the Spirit of God. And Paul is saying, you have done the things, you are doing the things, you will continue to do the things that I've told you. Way to go. Now, let me explain to you why. Why it's the right thing that you do that and that you should continue to do that. And I, and I think Paul is taking this approach of explaining why after their initial obedience in the area, because down in verse 17 of this chapter, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Something else was being done incorrectly. So I think that perhaps Paul had already told the church there was something going on that wasn't right, and then Paul told the church how to conduct themselves in regard to their specific roles as men and women, and they followed the instruction. And now, praise God, they're getting a a follow-up to give them the background and the explanation, the why. So verse 3. But I want you to understand, you want to remember these two phrases, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. Remember those two phrases. And the head of Christ is God. Uh, So first of all, let's talk about this idea of headship. What is the idea of this head? What does it mean to be the head Uh, And there's two ways that we can think about it, two aspects of this analogy. Number one is this. Uh, I think the idea here is that the head rules the body. We think about our own selves, our bodies. The head rules the body. Uh, I would think we would all agree that every part of our bodies is important. We're not really willing to give up any of them necessarily. But what part of our body makes the rest of our body go? And it's the head. The head. If we saw somebody riding a motorcycle today with every part of their body covered from neck to toe... But then they left off the helmet. We might think, well, that's kind of strange. If they're going to that extent, why didn't they put a helmet on? That's the most important thing. When fall rolls around, if the boys are able to go out and play football, think about all the players lining up on the line, getting ready to bash into each other, and they've got all their pads on, every bit of that gear's on, except their helmets. Especially when we think about football today, we'd think, put your helmet on. You've got to get your helmet on. Why do we think that way? Well, because the head rules the body. We need to protect it. Um, Secondly, the head represents, the head represents the body. Uh, For example, how many of you on your driver's license, your driver's licenses, have a picture, you don't have to take it out because you're not going to need to think about this, but how many of you on your driver's license, there's a picture of your foot on there? A picture of your foot. Imagine, I know this would never happen to us, but imagine you get pulled over, Police officer comes, knocks on your window. Can I have your license and registration, please? And by the way, if you can, please go ahead and take your shoe and sock off so I can see your foot to identify you by that. That's not how that works, is it? Uh, For your kiddos, imagine at school, last fall, you're coming in this fall, you go in for your school pictures, and you're surprised to see that the photographer points the camera to the side and down to make sure he gets in close on your elbow and your hand. Imagine going to somebody's house and they're a senior and they've got those picture frames where they've got the pictures from kindergarten and then the middle is the senior picture and it's just an elbow. Like, oh my, look at how they've changed. 
This one looks just like his dad. You know, we don't do that, right? We don't do that. Why? What represents you? What identifies you in all those things? Your head, your face, right? Who is the face of the church? It should be Jesus Christ. Who's the head of the church? Christ. Uh, When people see us, who are they to see? Who do we reflect? Our head, Christ. When the disciples wanted to see the Father, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God the Father is the head of Christ. Christ reflected the glory of the Father. And this is true of our marriages as well. Notice, though, is there a superiority of worth? A superiority of holiness, of glory? Is there a superiority of godness in the Trinity? Well, no. Is the Son less God than the Father? Is the Spirit less righteous than the Son? No, one is, one is not better than the other. And yet, the Spirit points people to Jesus. And the Son reconciles people to the Father. There is submission in tasks and responsibility within the Godhead. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John, uh, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's 434. 530, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 638, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Christ went to the cross because the Father willed it. And Christ did it submissively and willingly. The same is true for God's creation, for people, uh, man and woman. Both are made in the image of God. Both are equal in value, in worth. Both were made to complement one another. And in that complementing, the man is to love and sacrifice and lead. And the woman is to love and sacrifice, and be a helpmeet. The head of Christ is God, the Father. Christ is the head of the church, and the head of the wife is her husband. I think it's helpful for us to remember here too, in Corinth, the original audience of this letter, women were being treated with respect more than they ever had before in the church. Not everybody in Corinth, they were not. The women in the church were being treated better than they ever had before. Roman society treated women as little more than a slave. Jewish culture wasn't much, if any, different. And that's not because God allowed it, it's because they were disobeying him. But this is what the women were used to. And then all of a sudden, in the church, husbands were commanded to love their wives, to respect and love these women. Husbands were commended and commanded to be faithful to them. It wasn't like the wives had to be faithful to their husbands, but the men could go and sleep with whomever they pleased, which was the way that the Corinthian culture had uh, handled themselves. This is what they would have been used to before Christ. No, the husbands were commanded to remain pure and to love their wives and their wives alone. Husbands were to dwell with their wives in an understanding way. Perhaps never better said than in Ephesians 5, 25 through 31. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ 
loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ went to the cross and died and took the penalty of the sin of his bride. He didn't make sure she got hers. He took the penalty of her sin to save her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that's another example where the message that is our salvation when we believe and put our faith in Christ is also our pattern for living. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why will Christ's bride be so beautiful? Because he loves her so fiercely. That's why. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then we'll see this again later, but it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and hold, father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So most of these women, most of these wives had probably never before been given that kind of attention, that kind of care, that kind of dignity, honor, that kind of love. To have a husband who would sacrifice himself for her good who would nurture and care for her in a way that paid attention to her needs, took the time to listen and understand her, and helped her to grow and become a better person, more like Christ. This was new to these women. And to say this, may it not be new to our wives, men. And then at the same time, uh, there was there a feminist movement that just so happened to be going on in the Roman culture where the women were fed up with the way that they'd been treated, and rightly so. They were treated little more than slaves. They started doing things to kick the system, to get out from under the unfair and little known to them unbiblical, ungodly ways that they'd been treated. And so Paul knows he needs to step in and make sure that the roles were being defined according to God's design not the world's. It seems quite possible the people in the church were riding these waves of change in their liberty in Christ, and then the waves of the culture kept right on carrying them beyond what was right, from one extreme to the other. Uh, Treating women as subhuman and inferior is wrong, and so is abandoning the distinction of gender. Those are two wrong answers. Verse 4. Every man who prays, this is man to God, and these things are uh, like a public ministry. Every man who prays, so man to God, or prophesies, this doesn't mean telling what's going to happen in the future. Uh, This word means to communicate the truth of God's word. So in a way, according to this word, this definition, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm sharing with you the truth of God's word. So man declaring God's truth to people with his head covered... If the man has his head covered in doing those things, a type of veil communicating submission, it says he dishonors his head. Remember verse 3, who is his head? Christ. So if the man covers his physical head when he's praying, when he's prophesying, he dishonors his head, Christ. 
Verse 5, but every wife who prays, woman to God, or prophesies, a woman declaring God's truth to people, with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. Verse 3, who was that? Her husband. Since it is the same, he says, as if her head was shaven. We'll, We'll talk about that. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. And since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, now, in order to help us figure out exactly what these verses are all about, it's super important to know that the veil, the head covering, was seen in this culture as a sign of submission. It was a sign of submission. It was a cultural sign. It's going to be helpful for us as we go forward. When a woman wrapped a covering over her head, she was communicating to the people around her that she was submitted to another. So a wife to her husband, uh, then you'd say for a daughter, an, an unmarried young woman to her father. And so then if a woman, think of a woman who was married, she went out on the town, walking down Main Street with her head uncovered, letting her hair down to flow openly, removing the symbol that she belonged to another, what was she looking to do? What was she looking to do? Uh, this was their way at that time, in that place, of dressing immodestly. To lure. Seeking to entice. Uh, to find a man who would commit adultery. And now, add to that, when a woman was caught in adultery there, uh, remember, men were allowed to go off and do that, but they didn't let women. When a woman was caught in adultery then, uh, or if she was considered a prostitute, which it seemed that she would have been had she committed adultery, they just would have treated her as such, then her head would be shaved. The hair would be shaved off her head, entirely uncovered. Uh, A woman with an uncovered, shaved head would either have been regarded as a woman caught in adultery or as a prostitute. So when Paul writes that if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, it's the same as if her head was shaven, he's implying that the woman who goes out looking for a man to sin is not too far away from that, what would be considered a disgraceful haircut. The one act will surely lead to the next. And so in the eyes and the perception of people, you might as well just go ahead and shave your head because that's the direction they're all going to think you're headed. Does that make sense? And then since none of these Christian women in their right minds would want to have their hair shaved off, they say, oh, no, no, no. Since they should never dream of cheating on their husbands or be identified as having done so or even planning on doing it, they should instead, Paul says, and joyfully pursue God's will and command for them and display their obedience to God and their desire to enjoy their husband's loving leadership in the way that was commonly communicated in their culture. The next question we might ask is this. Why would the women in the church even want to dress in a way that would be like a luring, adulterous sort of way? And the answer is, I don't think they did. I don't think that was their primary motive. Why would the women in the church want to dress that way? It's not actually why they consider taking off their head covering. Uh, remember how I told you that there, there were women in the, in the day that were speaking out and defying the system in Rome and, and included in Corinth. Women who were fed up with how they were being treated. And history tells us these women evidently were divorcing their husbands. In both Roman and Jewish cultures, uh, men were divorcing women just for not being the favorite thing they wanted that day, and they found something better, they would divorce this one and head to the other one. Just common practice. 
So these women said, forget that, I'm divorcing you. I'm going to turn this on you. Leaving their children and families behind. You know what? You raise the kids. Uh, sometimes sleeping around just to prove that they could. Even shaving their own heads in advance. I'm not even going to let you be the one who shaves my head. I'll do it myself. They were trying to liberate themselves. Quote, unquote. They wanted to prove that they could make it on their own. They wanted to act just like the men. Even though those men were not acting like men, were they? Uh, They wanted to abandon their femininity. They wanted to shatter gender roles and shatter gender identities. Uh, We have a little experience with that in our day and our age. Expressed a little differently, but same thing. So, What I think happened here was since the women of the church were being treated so much better by their husbands after they came to Christ and started treating each other the way God commands men to treat their wives and to treat women in general, there was a sense, a feel, we understand this, of liberation. Uh, And then off came the head coverings. And so Paul teaches... Uh, The way the world's men were treating those women is wrong. And the way these women were responding in the church, it went too far. God has called us. This is a key thing here. I have it in here twice. God has called us to something better, church, than either option the world is giving you. God has called us to something better than either option the world is giving you. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this message, so many times we can take, the world says, hey everybody, you've got to choose this or you've got to choose that. And then we might go to God's word, but we're looking in God's word to find, okay God, is it this or is it that? And so often the answer is neither. This is what I said. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? If the world is saying these are the options, well shoot, I have a hard time figuring anything out if I don't have God's word to tell me the answer. The world certainly is not going to have that nailed down. God has called us to something better. And although there are probably more questions that I can answer from these verses, I just want to do one more before we move on to verse 7. Some people have seen in verses 4 and 5, it says, uh, since man and woman are praying and prophesying, speaking the truth, does this verse then permit women to preach and to teach uh, the men of the church? Since it says men and women praying and prophesying, should men and women both be preaching in the church? And when you come to a passage like this, the best thing to do is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we want to look at passages like Titus 2 and Acts 18, uh, where women are encouraged to teach other women. Uh, We need and we want women to teach women and to teach the younger women and to teach children, especially her own children. In Acts 18, Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife, meet Apollos, a young believer who needed to be discipled. And they worked together to instruct him and help him to understand and then to teach and preach the scriptures more accurately. So you say Apollos had... Uh, his Bible degree education for pastoral ministry from his two main teachers were a husband and a wife. Now, women are nowhere forbidden to share the gospel with a lost man, for, for that matter, either. Nowhere forbidden from that. And then we also look at passages like 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll, as we continue to go through, we'll get there in about a month or so, and, and 1 Timothy 2, where 
specifically in public ministry, in the gathering of the church together where adult men and adult women are both present, in those specific situations, it says that men are the ones who should exercise those preaching and teaching responsibilities, those ministries. So men and women should teach others in various ways in the church family and in our homes. That's what this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 says. And where men and women are both present in the public ministry of the word, God has ordained men to lead in those times. So with Scripture interpreting Scripture, we can see an agreement in all of these verses. Uh, We don't have to remove 1 Corinthians 11, 4, and 5 from our database because it doesn't seem to make sense. Scripture does not disagree with itself. Where we get into trouble is when we take a passage, and especially a tough one like this that has all these cultural background things, and we, and we try to make sure that we find all of the cultural background to it that we prefer. Again, bring in our agenda to the text. Even though our conclusion from that text will, will disagree with two or three other passages of Scripture, God doesn't disagree with himself. And when we take this and understand it in this way, in its own context, as it's being presented, none of these scriptures disagree with each other. None of them do. Okay, so we can move forward in that understanding. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And Paul refers here to Genesis 2, where we see God made man from the dust of the ground, and he put him over the garden, and the idea of dominion and and creating man in God's image and for his glory to subdue the earth was already in place. And then God saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And God said, I will make a helper fit for him. And then that, that verse again. And the man shall leave his father and mother, the man being singled out first due to his role, and then hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, complementing each other in their union. Uh, girls, if a guy ever says to you, you complete me, you correct him. Say no, because that's kind of a selfish thing to say, actually. You complete me, so therefore I like you. No, you say, no, actually I compliment you. That's, that's accurate, okay? There you go, I fixed that one for you. All of this was before the fall. All of what was just said there was before the fall, and God said it was very good. It wasn't until after the fall that God declared to Eve, as a consequence of the curse, your desire will be contrary to your husband. You won't want to go Uh, your husband's way. You'll want to go your own way, and you won't desire to follow his leadership, but he will rule over you. He will lord it over you. Both of those, again, are wrong. And when we hate the idea of, of leadership and submission, it's because we hate the idea of being lorded over. And being lorded over is wrong. Does that make sense? That's not right. That is not God's plan. That is not what he's telling us to do. So both men taking advantage of their leadership role selfishly at the expense of their wives and women's desire to be in the place of or in the role of their man and all of those things are sinful consequences of the fall. So verse 10, and here's some more interesting stuff. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over head, on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels. 
Uh, we know this, the angels are the messengers of God. It might seem strange uh, to think about this and to have this in the middle of this passage here. Uh, why would the angels care about this, we might say? But they are God's created beings. They are individuals who care about the holiness, the honor, the integrity of God and his people. They're intelligent They certainly would have known what the cultural understandings were of having the veil covering or not having the head covering. Uh, And they are also wholly submissive to God. We aren't. The angels are wholly submissive to God. And they may have been shocked to see the women in the church having the appearance of flaunting themselves and abandoning their God-given purpose and function in relation to their husbands and in relation to the church. So then... As we move forward, again, Paul is keeping us from swinging too far from one direction to the other. Verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Don't forget that. And all things are from God. And again, he appeals to the thinking uh, of the Corinthian church. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God? And again, the idea here is publicly with her head uncovered. And from all of this context, the answer that that needs to be given by the Corinthian churches is no, not right. Then he says this in verse 14. This is the favorite, how is he going to answer this one question, okay, from this verse. Does not nature itself teach you? Doesn't it just seem right? That if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Uh, this passage is just full of fun verses. <laughs> there were there were many. Think about it, there were men in the Bible. Samson, for instance, where God directly instructed him not to cut his hair. Uh oh. Um, and, and if you read a bunch of different people thinking about this verse, you're going to see things from. Uh, often people talk about like what testosterone does to men's hair and estrogen to women's. And, and even if you were to look around here now, you'd notice that some of us guys are having a little bit of a problem uh, with uh, protecting our heads from the violent sun rays when we go out there. Uh, what happened there? Um, by and large, we think of and we see that men would have uh, less hair and women would have more hair. And, that, and that's true. However... This word in the Greek, and I, and I think it's right to interpret it this way, for long hair, it means uh, to style your hair in a feminine way. It was a way that they would use that word to say to style your hair in a feminine way. And so what Paul is saying is that um, at the base root, uh, as a way of showing uh, our womanness, our manliness or whatever is is that a man should look like a man. A man should dress himself, do his hair up like a man. And a woman should look like a woman. Uh, to do her hair in a feminine way. Uh, so ladies with shorter hairstyles, you're not in sin. Woo! Right? Uh, the big idea here is that the ladies' hair should look like ladies' hair. Women should look like women. Men should look like men. Verse 16. It's like Paul knew. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, (laughs) if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. 
Paul has given us this instruction, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose for manhood and womanhood. So Paul says, okay, Christians, followers of God, this is God's word. We either joyfully submit to our Lord and Savior, or we reject it and sin against him and against those around us. Are we going to come to a passage like this with our yeah, but, or are we going to say, God, I'm yours, and what you say is right and good all the time? And if I think otherwise, then my thinking is what needs corrected, not yours. We are Christians. We follow Jesus. We are not to be a contentious people. That's applicable in all areas of life, right? We are not to be a contentious people. And if we were to contend with this passage, who are we contending with? Well, it's the Lord himself. We're going to lose that battle. Uh, But when we lose to him and we surrender to him, we win, don't we? Uh, We have no such practice as to argue with God, our maker and our redeemer. So, okay, so we've made it through this passage. Whew! All right. Get a breather. Okay, now what? This might feel like a tough application here, uh, partly because we don't live in a culture that expects women to wear head coverings or, or to shave their heads if they commit adultery. If anything, those things would be honored anymore. And if not honored, then at least it would be normalized. Uh, so the answer for us, for our ladies, is not to, to take your COVID masks and to put them on top of your head as you leave the church today. That's not, that's not what we need to do to cover our heads in that way. But how do we? How do we? And we could look at uh, different things in uh, this passage and come to some conclusions. We could do things like this. As Christians, we are to care about others and our ability to minister the word of God to them, uh, that they wouldn't be distracted by our dress, uh, that we wouldn't use our liberty in a way that would prevent people from hearing the truth. As Christians, we are to value God's designed, created order. He is our Lord. As Christians, we are to delight in leadership and submission because God has given them to us. As God's people, our men should look like men and our women should look like women. If nothing else, in that last verse about about the women doing their hair as a woman, that was given as a covering. So for us to say, well, in our culture, how do we do that? And that can be increasingly difficult, right? As the lines would be continually blurred and as the definition of a man and a woman or even the existence in our cultural frame of mind of man and woman, well, how do we respond to our culture and look culturally like that? And, and it seems as though Paul would say for our men to look like men and our women to look like women, to embrace that. As followers of Jesus Christ, our men should act like men, not just look like them, act like men. And not how the world thinks men should act, how God has designed for men to act. The world will be a terrible teacher of us of what manliness is. It's not just eating beef jerky and sawing trees in half. What does a God say a man is? I didn't say that at 9 o'clock. That was special for this service, okay? What does God say a man should act like? And women. Women should act like women. Men should act like men. Masculinity that isn't toxic or chauvinistic. Masculinity that is loving and protective and sacrificial, that provides for the needs of others. Masculinity that makes people feel safe, not scared, unless someone's doing wrong. Then they probably should feel scared because they know you're going to protect the others under your care. 
a masculinity that invites a woman to rest in her God-given womanhood without having to worry that she's going to have to do our job, men. A femininity that is kind, warm, nurturing. A femininity that values a quiet and steady, supportive strength. Femininity of a gentle and quiet spirit. First Peter 3, and this is an amazing phrase here, which is very precious to the Lord. Women, a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious to the Lord. That doesn't mean you can't laugh. It doesn't mean you can't get excited. But a gentle and quiet, quiet spirit is precious to the Lord. A femininity where the beauty starts in the heart and shines out in the countenance, in her words, in her eyes and ears as she listens and supports. A femininity that elicits courage and masculinity from her man. Or for a mother, as her boys grow, that her femininity would draw out the masculinity in her young boys who will become, by God's grace, godly men. In a culture that seems to look like it wants to head toward an abolishing of gender specificity, we must be resolved to look to God's design and God's word to define what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. What love is. What marriage is. And how we are to complement one another. How we all function together as a church, as men and women, to the glory of God. Are we willing to trust God's design? Are we willing to be countercultural in this way? Will we embrace and enjoy being men and being women, even if that becomes strange and even perceived as gross and archaic? And listen, there are some gross and archaic definitions of, of manliness, aren't there? Or, or of femininity. And, and just because somebody's telling you you're wrong because you're being too manly, they might be right if your definition of manly does not agree with God's definition of masculinity, of, of manhood. So don't, like, enjoy the bickering if what you're doing actually is wrong. Be God's kind of man. Be God's kind of woman. Our church needs men to be men and to lead our people to Christ and to lead our community to Christ. Oh, we don't need a bunch of boys who like to play. We can't stop playing. We need men. Our church needs women to be women. Are, are women reflecting the glory of their husbands? Think of Proverbs 31, that their husbands would be known in the gates. And are men reflecting the glory of God? All of us reflecting God's perfect design in the midst of a fallen world, serving as salt and light, offering to the lost something far better than the options the world has to offer, pointing them to Christ. And when we embrace and live our lives as God intended us to, and as he created us to do, there is joy to be had there. Now, sometimes we think that we're going to avoid the pressures and avoid the fears associated with our roles, 
But when we abandoned our own and try to avoid leadership men or try to take it over, ladies, we don't find joy and satisfaction there. We only find other and, and more problems that are not supposed to be ours to carry. So we both need each other to do our loving best. Joy and rest are to be found in following Christ, in doing what God designed us to do. I think of Eric Liddell. Have uh, you ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? It's a uh, movie about his part of his life. Uh, he gave his life as a missionary to the Chinese in the 1940s. But he's most famous for winning a gold medal in the 400 meters in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, his best event was the 100 meters. But he didn't run that one because that event was going to be held on a Sunday. And Mr. Liddell would not miss church on the Lord's Day to run for a gold medal in the Olympics. And, and when asked why he ran it all, his sister asked him, why do you even run it all? He famously replied, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And certainly we could think that when he went to China, to, to take the gospel, he felt God's pleasure. When he did the things that he knew that God had called him to do, when he obeyed the word of God, he felt God's pleasure. We want that, right? We want that. When we do what we know God made us to do, there's joy. As men, be the men God created you to be. Women, be the women God created you to be. Children, grow to become the men and women, God is making you to be. I just want to encourage you, children. Um, we can change who we are a lot to try to impress people and to get them to like us. Be the kind of young man and be the kind of young woman that would attract a godly young man or a godly young woman and trust God to give you the spouse that he would have you to have or to give you the life uh, potentially in singleness, which is, Paul said, even better. Do we, do we trust him? We need to grow to become the men and women God is making us to be. Rest in his loving sovereignty, in the perfection of his design. Strive to please the Lord and to enjoy him in the life that he has given you. Let's close with Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. We don't tell God how things are going to be. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace given to us. And we acknowledge, um, again, your holiness and your perfection. We also acknowledge, Lord, um, certainly for me, the numbers and numbers of times that I have not defined manhood the way that your word would. The constant battle that can take place in our minds as, as we would take in information from outside, as we would selfishly consider the things that we want in our own hearts as we 
uh, might even misread parts of Scripture or even take something, maybe even from the Old Testament, that you never said was good, but that we take as an approval. And, and we do wrong. God, I pray for our men. I pray for our husbands. That we would love our wives as Christ loved the church. That we would give ourselves up for her. That our sacrificial love would be um, life-giving and cleansing and purifying and hope-filled for them. Lord, may we not um, really just be ticked off if our wives aren't as good as we want them to be, especially when we haven't loved them the way Christ has loved us. Uh, Certainly, Lord, to get the beam out of our own eye. God, please use us that we might embrace uh, what you've called us to do, how you've called us to live, how you've called us to love one another in our homes and in the church uh, to enjoy what you have given us, to embrace these things, to pursue a Christ-likeness in love and in generosity towards one another. And then, God, please use us in that to be a city set on a hill, to be a light to a lost world, even, even if they should abandon uh, these things that you've given us and commanded us to do as you've designed us to do. And I pray too, Lord, if there would be anybody here today who has never heard of this idea of Christ loving the church and giving himself up to die on the cross to pay for our sin. There would be a person here who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their sin to repent and and call on the name of our Lord to be saved. God, I pray that you would work in their heart today to bring them to repentance and salvation. Today would be the day of their salvation. And Lord, help us as we go from here uh, to honor you, uh, to love one another. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Mm-hmm.